From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, whether it's acne, hair loss, or something more serious like skin cancer, some problems with the skin, hair, or nails require a trip to the dermatologist, the skin specialist. Many dermatological conditions can be treated with medication and non-invasive therapy, but some require more invasive treatment, such as surgery. On today's program, we'll discuss a wide variety of dermatology topics with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll learn about the autoimmune disease research happening in Mayo Clinic's neuroimmunology lab. And understanding the value of genetic testing. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Childs. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our skin, you know, it's not only the biggest organ of our body, it's also the most visible. So when something changes or doesn't look quite right, we notice, or somebody else does. (laughs) (laughs) Problems of the skin, the hair, and the nails can range from acne and hair loss to something more serious like skin cancer. You know about dermatologists? I Tell do. Tell us how many different conditions they see. <laughs> well, dermatologists, in fact, diagnose and treat more than 3,000 different conditions. Hard to believe. Here to discuss some of those skin and hair problems is Mayo Clinic dermatologist, actually my favorite dermatologist, Dr. Don Davis. Welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Tom and Tracy. <laughs> it's my pleasure to be here. Don't tell Dr. Brewer that I said that. I'm <laughs> not telling anyone, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but it's a feather in my cap for the day. Okay, good. You know, it is interesting that it, the skin uh, is our largest organ, but it's, a, it's a, sort of hard to think about it as an organ as compared to the liver or the spleen or the uh, lungs. But it it is more than just a wrapper or a coating, isn't it? It is, absolutely. The skin is the largest organ, and I thought you were going to say the most important organ, but it is definitely my favorite <laughs> well, organ. the bones. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. I forgot. But you literally can't live without your skin. If you didn't have your skin for a few minutes, you wouldn't be here. So the skin is very important. And it, it's a large surface area, which is how it gets to be the largest organ. If you stretched out the skin, it would be the size of an NFL football field. What? So that's a very large amount of space and a lot of chemistry and science science and metabolism going on all the time. The skin is multiple layers thick and it grows and sheds in 28 to 30 day cycles. So you get a brand new you, if you will, about once a month. Do you, uh, I'm just going to pretend that I'm a dermatologist for a second. And the way that skin changes the most over your lifetime is just getting drier. Is that true? Is there other ways that the skin changes? There are other ways that the skin changes with our immunity and with hormone regulation as we age. Mm. So with puberty onset and then sciescence of hormones when we reach menopause or for men, menopause. (laughs) (laughs) And then also uh, just biological aging with sun damage and things like that, exposure to the environment like wind and chemicals over time. And then last but not least, changes of the immune system. So as our immune system learns and grows more robust through childhood and then through midlife as it stays hopefully very stable and you don't develop autoimmunity and then as you age and it becomes a little bit more forgetful or senescent and so those factors are really what determine what happens with our skin over time. Is it true that most of the dust and detritus that we find in our homes is caused by dead skin? 
Yes. So when we all dust our homes and have those chores, that most of the components of dust that you see on your furniture is simply dead skin cells because we actively shed them all the time, 24-7. It's the only continually growing and regenerating organ. So when you get so that swiffer out, it's skin. That's oh, dead skin you're picking up. I did not need to know that. <laughs> but you get a brand new you every month. <laughs> oh, good. Well, one of the things that we wanted to do is talk about some of the problems that people can have with their skin, skin issues, and hair loss. But let's first start out talking about acne, because uh, people will say that's a kid's problem, but unfortunately... Not just a, ch- a kid's problem. Yeah, so acne can actually happen across the entire lifespan, and it just happens in different forms for different reasons. So you can actually get acne as a neonate, which is technically defined as the first 28 days of life, and that can be due to circulating hormones from the mom coming across the placenta and then causing inflammation in the child to lead to acne. Then you can get infantile acne, which is where the infant's own immune system and cortisol stress levels of the adrenal glands flux and cause acne vulgaris, if you will. However, it's in an infant and young child. And then the acne we all think of is truly acne vulgaris, which is when with the onset of puberty, our oil glands become stimulated by hormones and also with the fluctuation of hormones um, through cycling, for example, for women or growth spurts for boys. The cortisol from our adrenal glands rises and spikes with stress, whether that be pubertal stress or teenage stress, and then hormones fluctuate through puberty as well. And those stress releases cause oil production, which then overgrows bacteria. And if your skin is sticky and plugged, you'll get acne. And then as we reach middle age, especially for females, we can have... um, Adult onset acne, also known as middle aged female acne, but no lady likes to hear that. And so that's driven by hormone dysregulation in, in the woman, which causes stress to the body and then releases acne, usually along the jawline and the chin. And then as we get older, um, in our senior years with sun damage and time, the skin simply doesn't slough as well. And so it can make large blackheads, which are called open comedones. And that's not necessarily due to internal factors, but they cause an acne-like eruption of blackheads that's, ca- that's called Fav Rocochot. Say that again. Fav Rocochot. That sounds like that's French. We. <laughs> oui. <laughs> Best served with fish. And I, I, want, I want you to talk to us <laughs> about... The treatment of acne. Before we had better treatment for acne, people used to get pipette extraction or just extraction. They also would get cryotherapy to their skin, so people would simply freeze the pimples to cause all the inflammation to die. Or they would actually put radiation on the skin, and people would get x-ray therapy and Grenz ray therapy for acne, because if you necrose the skin, it can't make acne, because it can't So you kill the skin with the radiation. Correct. I mean, if you kill the inflammatory cells, then you can't get acne. But unfortunately, that leads to poor downstream consequences. Like thyroid cancer? Yeah, like radiation dermatitis, cancers of all sorts. It suppresses your immune system. So we have many more advanced ways that are better and safer to treat acne now, many of which are over-the-counter. Such as? So over-the-counter things you can do include benzoyl peroxide and salicylic acid. This helps unstick the skin, if you will, decrease inflammation in the superficial layers of the skin, and it also helps control the number of natural uh, bacteria that are supposed to be on the skin called propionum bacterium acnes. It keeps their numbers under control. If over-the-counter stuff doesn't work? 
Yes. So let me back up a moment and say that anyone with mild to moderate or severe acne, the first thing they should do is start washing their skin twice a day with soap and water because a lot of people take for granted that they don't need to do that very often, much less twice a day. And it's well known in dermatology, and there's been some studies performed on this that show that twice a day face washing with a mild soap actually helps clear acne. And we think that that's simply because it helps remove dirt, dander, and superficial oil, and it might slightly unplug the skin. So the first thing you can do for acne that's over the counter is wash your face twice a day with soap and water. And based on the fact that adolescents are the most likely people to get acne, that's the last thing they want to do. But it actually doesn't take as, it's just as long as brushing your teeth. Hopefully most people brush their teeth twice a day, and so while they're in this, at the sink brushing their teeth, they can wash their face. But if you apply over-the-counter benzoyl peroxide and salicylic acid and you don't get any improvement from that or you don't get enough improvement to your liking, then you can see a primary care doctor or dermatologist for advanced prescriptions. And those include topical prescription acids that help exfoliate the skin, control inflammation, and control bacteria numbers, and then topical antibiotics that helpful that also help with inflammation and controlling bacteria. Advanced treatments include hormone regulation pills for females. There's certain blood pressure pills that can be used in women that we also believe help control the stress response and hormone levels. And then last but not least, we have isotretinoin, which is a systemic variant of a derivative of vitamin A that's only available by prescription that helps permanently shrink oil glands and it helps exfoliate your skin rapidly. So that way when you have increased turnover and decreased oil, it helps with severe acne. There was a study recently that said those with acne are more likely to suffer from depression. And you were saying for teens, you know, that when you're stressed or for adults too, you know, it shows on your face with breakouts. Is there a link? Do you find that with your patients? Yes. I find that most skin diseases are linked to a lot of psychosocial um, concern simply because the skin is the organ that everyone can see. And we put so much emphasis in society on appearance and vanity. So I think it's sort of a positive feedback loop, if you will. If you have bad acne, you probably don't feel so good about yourself and it makes you feel have a lesser, more depressed mood. If you're depressed, you feel kind of um, lethargic and so you're less likely to be motivated to do things and it's hard to get up and get motivated to wash your face or put on medicine. And so then it just is a positive feedback cycle. I, we do see with patients that we've studied with um, intensive acne treatment and we do quality of life assessments for them, their quality of life improves significantly once their skin starts to clear. They simply look better and feel better about themselves. All right, Dr. Don Davis, time for a short break. You know, we haven't gotten very far on that list of 3,000 different skin (laughs) conditions that Dr. Davis knows something about. Uh, But when we come back, we'll switch gears and talk about some other conditions. Plus, we've got a myth or matter of fact. Myth or matter of fact, age spots, also known as liver spots, may be a signal of liver problems. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with skin specialist, dermatologist, Dr. Don Davis. We talked about acne. We beat that to death, haven't we? But (laughs) at least we got some answers. So much acne, uh, so little time. I am. And uh, one last question. Chocolate have anything to do with it? Absolutely not. Uh, Perfect. If you knew how much chocolate I ate, you would know that it cannot cause acne. (laughs) (laughs) Myth or matter of fact, age spots or liver spots may be a signal of liver problems. Myth or fact? Uh, Pretty much myth. So liver spots, age spots, my patients don't like those terms, so I say wisdom spots. Mm -hmm. So wisdom spots are simply due 
to the color cells of the skin dysregulating their release of pigment because they're getting a little old, forgetful, and damaged from sun and time. And so um, we usually don't grow new moles or freckles after the age of around 25 unless we're in in pregnancy. But for the rest of us, as time goes on, most of us will have skin-related freckling or spotting, if you will, from age 25 onward simply due to time and sun exposure. And so photo protection um, helps prevent that. And then your that genetics. That would be like sunscreen? Sunscreen, clothing, yeah. hats, yeah. sunglasses. All right, so it doesn't have anything to do with the liver? Not really, no. Let's talk about hair loss. Do men and women both lose their hair for the same reason? Well, men and women both lose their hair commonly. It's more socially acceptable in men. And yes, they both lose their hair due to testosterone receptors on the scalp, but they lose their hair in different patterns. Okay. Um, testosterone receptors. So women have testosterone? Yes. So all women and men both have estrogen and testosterone. It's just that men have more testosterone than estrogen and women have more estrogen than testosterone. But our hair has various testosterone receptors in the follicle unit that help it grow. And so if you are genetically predisposed to have particular types of testosterone receptors on your scalp, then um, with hormone stimulation of a puberty in adulthood, if you have an excess or those receptors are simply um, finely attuned and overzealous, it will cause your hair density or the hair shaft itself to decrease in diameter. And so your hair will become miniaturized. And also the hair follicle will retract upward in the skin. So the hair is not deeply seated and it's not thick. It's more thin and it's superficial. And over time, that leads to miniaturization of follicles which then leads to what we call male pattern baldness and female pattern baldness. Okay, well, there you go. That's why it happens. What can, what can yeah. you do about yeah. it? Yeah. How yeah. do you stop it? So for women, what happens is you'll notice a widening of the central part or a thinning of the crown of the scalp, and then it slowly goes out at like a ring from there, and they'll become thin or bald on the top of the crown, but they'll maintain their frontal hairline and the sides and back. For men, they'll get the classic bald spot in the back of the crown. They'll get temporal recession, and then that will blend together, and they can actually lose all their hair. So if you start seeing hair loss, the best time to intervene is immediately because you want to halt that hormone stimulation and progression on the scalp. Over-the-counter Rogaine works very well. Uh, You can use it once or twice a day, and pretty much everyone can use maximum strength. You don't need to start off with the average strength Rogaine. We Um, want full strength. Full full strength, maximum strength, once or twice a day. Uh, Keep using it, maintain it, because it blocks those receptors. And then seek help from a dermatologist who can talk about advanced therapies for you. All right, one last quick question about hair. Why does it turn gray? It turns gray simply because the color cells in the bulb that give it pigment, they grow senescent with age. And then when the pigment's no longer there, the protein shaft reflects white light. Ran or, out of pigment. Or because of your kids. <laughs> uh, let's talk about facial peels, because if I've got a dermatologist here, I want to talk about facial peels. Which ones should I use and which ones should I not use? Yes, so there are multiple um, products or chemicals that people will put on the skin in form of a peel. And the goal of the peel is simply to exfoliate the skin, meaning taking off the rough layers, and also to uh, cleanse or hydrate the skin based on what's involved. So people feel refreshed after a facial, if you will, simply because you've chemically denuded the dead layer on top of you. Denuded? Which, yes, denuded. 
<laughs> you've kind of um, broken down acidically the dead skin on top, which allows your real surface because the cap or crust is gone to shine through. And then sometimes they can be hydrating or moisturizing. And so you can do some over-the-counter face masks that do that. And then you can go in for um, prescription strength amounts that have acids or vitamin C. Ask her about cellulite, because it only happens in women, right? <laughs> There's nothing you can do about cellulite, is there? Well, cellulite happens as we age simply because the tentacles of the skin, if you will, that anchor the skin to the um, fascia and muscle below tend to break down with time, and things can kind of herniate through. Um, maintaining a healthy weight helps a lot, because the more stress burden there are on the tentacles, the more it is likely to break down. So people start to notice that around middle age. But if you control your weight, um, that's... That will help a lot. Some people are just more genetically predisposed than others. But cosmetic dermatologists and plastic surgeons oftentimes have ways that they can help remove the cellulite. A 60-second PSA for sunscreen because it is spring break time and moving into summer. Well, thank you for allowing me to speak on sunscreen because it really is a big deal. So photoprotection is the only thing you can do to reduce your risk of skin cancer because you can't control time, you don't want to make the sun go away, and you can't control your genetics. And so using photoprotection has been shown to to definitely decrease your risk of all forms of skin cancer, and it also decreases your risk of photoaging, which is nice. So for everyday wear... SPF 15, for limited outdoor use, SPF 30, and for days on the beach, SPF 50. And don't forget about sunscreen impregnated clothes that are listed UPF factor 15, 30, 50, etc. Plus hats and sunglasses. It's interesting. I think you've told us before that you use sunscreen year-round, even though you live in Minnesota. I'm wearing sunscreen right now. Me too. SPF 30. Yeah. I tell you what, she, her skin does look right, doesn't it? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I have to practice what it's, I preach. It's Absolutely. working. And you probably don't go to the tanning beds either. I definitely avoid the tanning beds. If you want to look more beige or brown than you are, there's no sin in that. But you can do that in a healthy way with self-tanner because self-tanner um, has temporary dye in it that sticks to the dead layers of skin on top and will last seven to ten days they're getting much easier to apply they don't necessarily overstick to uh, roughened skin and make you look orange or um, a shade of brown you don't like they will last seven to ten days and they come in multiple shades that are more palatable to natural skin tone than it did back in the 70s and 80s where there was one shade of orange orange you just spray it on you, there's lots of ways. But yeah, okay. Creams, <laughs> sprays. You can even go to a spa and have it sprayed on by a professional. So if you want to pamper yourself, and that's why you go to the tanning bed, pamper yourself instead with a scrub and a spray. Dr. Don Davis, dermatologist, Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much. Always great to have you on the program. My pleasure. Thanks for including me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Sanj Kakar will join me as co-host, and we'll dive into some research topics. Up first, helping patients get the right diagnosis for autoimmune diseases. And later on in the program, the benefits of genetic testing. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Multiple myeloma is the second most common blood cancer, but most people haven't heard of it until they or someone they know is diagnosed with the disease. Mayo Clinic is making significant advances with an individualized medicine approach. In recent years, Mayo researchers and others have uncovered a wealth of information about the genetic mutations that help multiple myeloma cells survive and multiply. Now, Mayo Clinic has translated those discoveries into clinical testing to personalize care. 
Dr. Keith Stewart says the disease has some of the most advanced genomic information available among all cancers. His team has a test panel to detect genetic mutations that have relevance to prognosis and to optimal drug therapies for patients. The test panel helps pinpoint mutations within an individual's tumor. The mutations make an individual likelier to respond to or likelier to resist the effects of a particular drug. Good news in the fight against this disease. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. The human immune system is a powerful tool. In response to bacteria and viruses, the immune system cells create a molecule called an antibody to fight the disease. Research on antibodies at Mayo Clinic is helping identify differences among autoimmune neurological diseases, which can lead to better, faster treatment for patients. Sounds good. Recently, Mayo Clinic launched a first-in-the-U.S. clinical test to help patients get the right diagnosis faster when it comes to diseases like multiple sclerosis. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic immunologist Dr. Vanda Lennon. Dr. Lennon is the Dorothy A. Adair Professor of Immunology and Neurology and is the founder of Mayo Clinic's Neuroimmunology Laboratory, which started back in 1981. Welcome to the program, Dr. Lennon. It's very nice to meet you. Very nice to be here. So tell us about the lab. 1981 seems like a long time ago. (laughs) Did it seem like yesterday? (laughs) Depends on whose perspective it is. It's gone remarkably quickly. How did you get get started in immunology? I I started out as a medical student in Australia, and I was fascinated by immunology. Australia was the epicenter of immunology at that time. Got a Nobel Prize in 1960 in Australia and to Salk Institute in San Diego to study neuroscience to complement the immunology that I had because I was already in Melbourne working on um, experimental autoimmune neurological disease, which was thought to be a model for multiple sclerosis, and I convinced myself that it had nothing to do with multiple sclerosis. And does it? No, <laughs> it is not. I will come to that later. <laughs> so what exactly are autoimmune neurological diseases? Uh, the one that we first put on the map um, in, in terms of having an antibody that caused the disease mm-hmm. was myasthenia gravis, which is a neuromuscular disease. Okay. And it's, if you've got to have a neurological disease, that's a good one because it, it, lots can be done to help those patients, like washing out the antibodies and then giving them medication to suppress the production of the antibodies. And what exactly is myasthenia gravis? Um, it's caused by antibodies blocking the muscle okay. side of the neuromuscular junction, so it stops the muscle getting the message from the nerve to oh, wow. contract. So they're, mm-hmm. they're neurological disorders, but are there any of that are related to cancer? Well, most of the autoimmune diseases that we recognize as truly autoimmune neurological diseases are associated with cancer to varying extents. For example, 15% of adult patients with myasthenia gravis will have a cancer. Usually it's a tumor of the thymus gland. Mm. And then there are, uh, there's another neuromuscular disease at the neuromuscular junction that uh, we also put on the map in terms of the antibody, and that's an antibody that blocks the nerve from releasing the message to the muscle, and that disease, 80% of them have 
in the way back in the 19, early 1980s, 80% of them were thought to have cancer. But once we developed the test to detect the antibody that was causing it, we found that patients that didn't have cancer can also have that disease, including children. So what we have found, because that's one of the diseases, it was actually first described here at Mayo Clinic back in the late 40s, the Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome. So what exactly are risk factors for these autoimmunological diseases? Are they genetic in nature, environmental in nature? Well, if we get back to the Lambert-Eaton syndrome, it's highly associated with smoking. Okay. And so... Uh, for the cases that are related to cancer, and it was first recognized with cancer uh, for two reasons. Back in the 40s, most of the smokers were men, and you have to smoke for about 20 years to be at risk for it. And if women complained of the symptoms and they were not smokers, they were not taken seriously as having a neurological disease because everyone knows women tend to be hysterical about yeah, symptoms. Yeah, always. <laughs> uh, but then with the antibody test, we were able to recognize more and more women and children with that disorder. Yeah, as well. How does, if you know the exact antibodies, how can that help improve the patient uh, treatment or the treatment the patients receive? Uh, if you know the exact antibodies, you know what you are dealing with, and multiple sclerosis would be a good example of that. You, you ask people, right. name an autoimmune neurological disease, and they'll say multiple sclerosis. It's immune-mediated. There's no question about that. No one has a clue what the target of the immune response is. There's no diagnostic marker specific for multiple sclerosis, none whatsoever. No genetic marker, no antibody marker, no imaging marker. There's a constellation of symptom signs and imaging and spinal fluid findings, but there's not any evidence that it is autoimmune. It could be immunity against a microbe that hasn't been discovered yet or hasn't been recognized in that context. So we think of antibodies as something that's beneficial to us, that protects our immune system. So what happens for it to attack our own body? Good question. <laughs> These antibodies aren't found in healthy people, Okay. the neurological antibodies. And what we have found, getting back to the Lambert-Eaton syndrome and its smoking association, it is lung cancer that it's highly associated with, the most deadly form of lung cancer, small cell lung cancer. But we have shown in our basic research that the lung cancers contain those very same calcium channels that the antibodies are recognizing at the nerve terminal. And in other cancer-associated neurological diseases, the target of the uh, immune response is not on the cell surface necessarily, but it's a piece of Mm -hmm. a nuclear protein or inside of the cell, and it's being displayed on an immune marker on the surface of the nerve or the muscle, and it's the cytotoxic or killer T lymphocytes that are the fighter bombers of the immune system come in and kill the neuronal cells. What's on the horizon for the research that you're doing? Uh, Earlier diagnosis, more appropriate diagnosis, authentic animal models. There have been animal models for multiple sclerosis for almost 100 years, but 
because the animals are weak and paralyzed, it doesn't mean they've got multiple sclerosis. Sure. So I think we can have much more appropriate models once we understand the diseases. There's not yet a really authenticated model of multiple sclerosis. We've been talking autoimmune neurological disease research with Dr. Vanda Lennon from Mayo Clinic's Neuroimmunology Laboratory. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lennon. Thank you, Sanjay and Tracy. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll discuss hereditary cancers and genetic testing with a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Faster and cheaper genetic testing is helping change the way we treat and prevent cancer. Gathering genetic information can help patients receive treatment that is better tailored to their disease, thereby making it more effective. Cancer patients can also find out if they have a hereditary trait that could be passed on to children or grandchildren, giving parents and families a leg up on preventing hereditary cancers. Joining us on the phone to discuss genetic testing is Dr. Douglas Riegert, who leads the Hereditary Cancer Clinic on Mayo Clinic's Florida campus. Good morning, Dr. Riegert. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Dr. Riegert, uh, just uh, going back how this all developed, with all the environmental factors that cause cancer, for example, smoking, how did this program come about, about genetic testing for cancers? This program came about... Uh, because it was found that some families had a very high rate of cancer at a very young age that wasn't explained by environmental factors. Are there specific types of cancer that are hereditary? I would say at this point we've found hereditary cancers of every type, ranging from lymphoma to melanoma, colon cancer, and breast cancer. Uh, The most uh, common, or one of the most common in the earliest described form of hereditary cancer was hereditary colon cancer. I'm not the doctor here. So why is it that some cancers are more likely to be a hereditary type than others? Some uh, cancers uh, are primarily caused uh, by environmental toxins. could be melanoma from UV radiation. could be lung cancer from smoking, mesothelioma from asbestos. Uh, other cancers uh, are kept in check by genes which prevent cancers from forming, and when those genes are broken, uh, patients, uh, due to hereditary traits, patients are at an increased risk for cancer. You reeled off a number of uh, cancers uh, a minute ago. Are there ones in particular that have a stronger uh, preponderance in terms of genetic uh, background? Yes, I would say um, it would, uh, would on one end of the spectrum, would be breast and ovarian cancer, Approximately 10% of people at breast or ovarian cancer have a hereditary component. And then there would be a middle ground with colon cancer and other cancers, about 5%. And then uh, on the other end of the spectrum, where there's a low but still positive uh, uh, incidence of hereditary traits, uh, would be melanoma and a few other cancers. You had said uh, just a moment ago that there are genes that prevent cancers from forming, so people that get cancer maybe don't have that gene or something has happened to that gene. Is that more often what's happening, genes that prevent the cancer from forming? Or like you just said, there's some that do have, that can, that could lead to cancer. Which happens more often? The most uh, often event would be a gene that suppress cancer or tumor suppressor genes are broken. Uh, On the other end of the spectrum, there are less common syndromes where there are genes that are activated, uh, and those are cancer genes or oncogenes. 
That's amazing. It, it is. So, Dr. Riga, can you just then describe uh, what is your protocol for testing? For example, do you screen for everybody or do you look for a family history? How do you determine which patients are applicable for this genetic testing? So, um, there are many issues involved with uh, genetic testing. Uh, people are concerned about um, inheritance patterns. They're concerned about genetic discrimination. Uh, they're concerned about cost. That's not as much factor as it was. So patients come to the clinic. We're non-directive. Uh, take a personal and uh, very comprehensive, drawn-out family tree um, history, and then we uh, tell them what uh, tests are available, what their odds of having a positive test are, and what the, the value of the testing to them would be, and then patients decide uh, whether they want to have testing or not. The uptake on testing in the clinic is about probably 70%. So 30% of people don't want to have testing and about 70% do at this point. This has come a long way really fast in five or 10 years. And I remember the first time that I heard about this even being part of a conversation, it was, we don't know how much patients want to know or should Mm -hmm. know or how much they can handle and I know that genetic uh, counselors are part of that as well. I would have to imagine that you're working with them too. Absolutely. We have two genetic counselors here at Mayo Clinic, Florida. I, uh, going to back to your other point, uh, I would say two key developments have led to increased genetic testing for hereditary cancer traits. The first would be uh, something the Mayo Clinic was a part of, uh, we can be proud of at the Mayo Clinic, um, and that is in the past, the patent office had allowed people to patent genetic information. And so someone would patent a gene, and then they would have monopoly on it. So they would say, if you want to test this gene, you have to pay me X amount of dollars. Mm. Or you can't test this gene. I won't allow you to. I've sold the rights to someone else. Mm. The Mayo Clinic and a group of geneticists sued uh, one of the companies that had one of these patents and took the case all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court invalidated patents on genetic testing. Wow. The second development uh, was that um, two different companies invented new technology, which was much, which is much less expensive due genetic testing. So within a year, cost for hereditary breast cancer dropped from around thirty-two hundred dollars to a thousand dollars. Wow. Um, another advent has been. Uh, on, the, on the non-technical end, the non-cost end would be in the past, people were primarily being tested for knowing their own risk and then their children's risk. It didn't change their immediate cancer treatment, but uh, for both breast and ovarian and now uh, colon, if you have one of these hereditary traits, you receive a different, more effective chemotherapy than if you didn't. So it changes your personal treatment, not only your uh, understanding of your cancer risk and your children's cancer risk, and all all of those factors have come together to really um, form the, you know a nexus for increasing testing. Well, you just you just mentioned what my next question was going to be, and that has to do with the treatment. So, understanding that genetics can uh, change change the treatment um, for breast cancer or something of that like, uh, what about um, preventing further cancer? Does that does it help in that area as well? Uh, yes, it does. I'll give, uh, uh, give you an example from hereditary breast cancer. So a study from England showed that if women have hereditary breast cancer 
and they simply have uh, a lumpectomy or um, partial, you know, partial uh, breast removal, and then it compared them to women who went and had uh, prophylactic uh, mastectomies on both sides when they had the cancer diagnosis. They compared the survival between the limited patients with limited surgery and those with more extensive surgery 20 years later. The survival rate of the women having more extensive surgery was 60%. The survival rate of women having the limited surgery, leaving more breast tissue to form cancer, was 40%. There's a 20% difference in the long-term survival. Um, so it definitely informs risk. Most women in the United States will, uh, if, if not now, or I would say now, have testing for hereditary traits uh, even prior to surgery. Um, to help guide treatment. Now, Dr. Regat, we're, we're talking about the patient, but if uh, how do you deal with the family? For example, if the patient has hereditary cancer, how do you speak to family members about them potentially undergoing testing? As you know, it's important to treat every patient as their own individual patient. Mm-hmm. So uh, first thing we do is we let family members know they should tell other family members. Then when other family members contact us, we see them you know, as their own individual patient with other family members if they like or not and give them their own counseling session. Interestingly enough, when people have a relative diagnosed with one of these cancer syndromes and and they are told that they're at a 1 in 2 or 50% chance, like they usually would be, the uptake rate on testing is actually less than what I told you initially. It's it's actually 50% or less. It's variable how much value people see in the testing based on their own personal experiences and, um, and uh, situation. Why do, you, why do you think that is? I think, uh, first off, one thing that comes to mind is the insurance. So people, some people say, I could afford the cost of test, but if the test, if I have a positive test result, I need to have yearly uh, MRIs or of the breast, uh, uh, and I can't afford that. I don't have health insurance. Second group of people say, you may say the risk is 50% that I'll have hereditary, that I'll have breast cancer, but I'm seeing that as you know good odds. That's 50%. I won't have breast cancer. Right. So um, another group of Another group of people uh, going, you know, a smaller group of people are people who are concerned about genetic testing. There are people who feel genetic testing is, uh, somehow invades their privacy. They don't want to be labeled. Mm-hmm. Um, and people uh, oftentimes, you know, now doing this here in Florida for 10 years, um, I found that people change their minds. People sure. who didn't, who made one decision five years ago, not infrequently they come back to the office to make a different decision. What's next in the field of genetics or hereditary cancers? The next big thing would be that everyone will be offered hereditary uh, cancer testing at a very low price hmm. um, it's as a, a directly to consumer. There are companies that have already formed to that, and they're already in motion to offer direct-to-consumer hereditary cancer testing. Wow. We've been discussing hereditary cancers with Dr. Douglas Riegert, who leads the Hereditary Cancer Clinic on Mayo Clinic's Florida campus. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Riegert. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kaka. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.